Mary wants me to sit down. I want to stand up. I don't know. Uh, I have this urge to move around. There's so much energy in this room tonight, today. And thank you, Tom, so much for setting the stage of what was going on in the 60s. Isn't that a remarkable story of what, where we were, the way we were back then? And some of you in the audience remember this. Some of you remember it from our history that uh, you've uh, helped write and that some of us have written. Tom and I go way back. We met a lot of different times in Washington, working through these national organizations and brainstorming about what next to do. So I really enjoy the fact that Tom came to join us today. I wanted to, we each have 10 minutes according to Mary. <laughs> so we can either talk very fast or leave out a lot of things. And I think we'll leave out a lot of things and focus on what we think are the important, the most important things to tell you today. <clears throat> the first thing I'd like to do, though, is to get you up out of your feet, and I'll tell you why. Mary mentioned how important Jack Cole is and was to this program. I'd like to second that and recognize him, since this is being videotaped, let's all stand up and give him a standing ovation, Jack Holt. Why did Yale start a PA program? You've heard some of the, the interesting models and the history from several other institutions. At Yale, it was the idea came in the following manner. Dr. Cole came to be the new head of surgery here in 1969. And he had several priorities for his department one of which was to look at emergency medicine and trauma and accidents as a major focus of his department. And the reason he picked that was because in addition to all the other things that Tom alluded to was going on in the, in the 60s, another thing that was neglected, another dimension of the medical scene that was neglected was the problem of accidents and trauma. The National Academy of Sciences in 1966 after a lot of study, came up with a report which called accidents the neglected disease of society and said someone needs to deal with the fact that people are dying on our highways, they're dying on our streets, and we are not responding effectively. We learned from Vietnam that if you go to the accident scene, you can do some very important life-saving measures you don't wait until the patient is brought back to the military hospital or in the civilian sector to a major medical center. Could some of these same principles be applied to our civilian sector? Dr. Cole went to the Commonwealth Fund of New York. The Commonwealth Fund is a very important uh, private foundation, philanthropy and health. They have endowed a lot of things here, as you saw yesterday when we met after the white coat ceremony. The place where we met, Harkness Pavilion, was endowed by the Commonwealth Fund. 
because the Harkness family is a Yale family and has done much to help foster healthcare in this country through the Commonwealth Fund and through other ways. So he went to the Commonwealth Fund and said, I'd like to do something in my Department of Surgery to deal with accidental injury and disability. Got a $1 million grant from the Commonwealth Fund, which back then was real money. <laughs> it would be like a trillion dollars now. <laughs> and <clears throat> set forth to look at the response to accidents from a systems point of view. Enter Blair Sadler, my much younger brother. <laughs> and we're having a birthday in about two days. If anybody can guess which one it is, there'll be a special <laughs> treat. <laughs> You'll get an extra CME point on your uh, sheet at the end of the day. If you don't get it right, you'll get two CME points, actually. <laughs> and it, Blair and I had always been interested, Blair being a lawyer, uh, we were in Philadelphia, me finishing my medical training, Blair, his legal training, were fascinated by issues at the interface of law and medicine. The Good Samaritan issue, definition of death, use of human beings in medical research, on and on and on. And we thought if we could find a way to work together and also satisfy our military obligation at a time when the Vietnam War was escalating. This was 1967. How many here were alive in 1967? Okay, <laughs> it's not just a year in the history books. So we were fortunate to get an opportunity to go to the NIH and work as a medical legal blob of twindom on health law problems. And the first thing they told us about that they wanted us to work on was organ transplantation and the use of human tissues in medical research, which is a, the subject of really a whole other symposium. But what was so exciting for us was that we were thrown into those issues and given the opportunity to help solve how do you allow people to donate organs and tissues and came up with the help of a lot of others with a model law to do that, the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act completed in 1968. We were having so much fun, we said to the secretary of HEW, who, of which NIH is a part, can we stay on for a third year? And we signed up for another year. And they said, our next problem we want you guys to look at is the credentialing of these new health practitioners that were just emerging, as Tom said, in these very years. We went to Duke, we went to Colorado, we went to Seattle, we met these wonderful, innovative physicians and nurses who were thinking of new ways to practice medicine. And as Tom said, intuitively it made great sense to us that these people can do a great job in healthcare. We were not only interested in the medical legal issues, but just the whole idea it was very, very exciting. I came to Yale after Dr. Cole, who had been my favorite professor in medical school in Philadelphia, and that's how I knew Dr. Cole. I came to visit him one day in, in 1969 to just check in as part of a site visit here, an NIH site visit. And he said he'd been following our career, and it was sometimes there's serendipity that if you're in the right place at the right time, you go to the bathroom and they elect you president of an association. <laughs> um, and later it seems like a good idea, I may not have at the time. Why, I just happened to notice that the, our article, it was in the New England Journal of Medicine on organ transplantation, was sitting on his desk when I went in to see him that day, and I thought, yes, 
This is great. Because Blair and I were thinking at the time of, okay, this has been wonderful. Where do we go next? We'd love to do some work in an academic setting. He suggested that we might like to come to Yale and help him run this trauma program. He came down to Bethesda. He didn't really know Blair as well. But the three of us sat around for breakfast in his hotel room over cold scrambled eggs one morning and decided, yes, let's do this. So we came here to New Haven in 1970, July of 1970, to help him run the trauma program. But we said, could we start a PA program? Because we were so impressed. And he said, sure, see if you can fit it into the trauma model. You know. So going forward, really, there were two major foci of our activities. One was the emergency medical system, which again is the subject of a whole other symposium. But with the Yale School of Public Health, Sam Webb, who was one of our colleagues there, nine graduate students in the School of Public Health, all of who were working on this major study we ended up doing, which was to use the state of Connecticut as our social laboratory. It's a small enough state you can do that and see what's going on in ambulance services, what's going on in emergency medicine. There were no emergency medicine doctors at, the point, at that point. Ambulances were little um, station wagons, or in one case, a hearse, because <laughs> Of the 179 ambulance companies in the state of Connecticut, one was actually owned and operated by a funeral director. Now, that is maybe not a very good healthcare model, but it's a great business model because <laughs> you, know, you can either save them and, make, and charge Medicare, or if you can't, you can work out the funeral arrangements. <laughs> so, that was the state of emergency medicine. There was no 911 number to call, and Blair's going to refer to this in, in a minute um, a little bit more of the work we did on that. But getting to the PA program. Ann was here. Thank you for being here, Ann. Paul Mosen was being hired by Jack and by Blair and me as a, our colleague. He was in the, se in the second class of Duke graduates, and I'm, I'm very disappointed that he couldn't be here with us today. Hello, Paul Mosen. Thank you, Paul Mosen, for the video camera. And so what we then had to do was design a curriculum. Well, we were fortunate that we could base it on the Duke model, because Paul knew that backwards and forwards. And I had to kind of peel them off me occasionally to say, well, at Duke we did this, and at Duke we did that, because I wanted to look at the other models as well. But we ended up going around to the faculty here, to every department chairman, to the dean, and telling them, here's what we're going to do with your help if you're willing to contribute with us. Universal support from all these wonderful people at Yale. And as the dean mentioned earlier, this is the kind of place that seems to be willing to take chances and grow new programs. Frankly, they hadn't done much out of the community before. There, it was more basic science bench research. So Dr. Cole and this Department of Surgery was really breaking new ground for Yale Medical School more broadly. We chose five students, two of whom are here today that you're going to hear about and hear from in a little bit. The selection process was very important because we wanted to get people who didn't want to go to medical school and couldn't get in. We, didn't, we wanted people who had, had previous health experience, and Anne's going to talk more in detail about that, but choosing the right people who were willing to take a risk with us was very, very important. As far as the, the, the details of writing the curriculum, there's so many stories we could tell about, um, I just got the high sign from my brother. <laughs> He's been doing this to me for years. I, I forgot say. the umbrella with the hook. Sorry. <laughs> I just got my. Yeah. But we designed the curriculum based on 
core principles? As we looked at physiology, pathology, anatomy, what are the core principles that we absolutely needed to know to be a good job as a clinician? Let's not worry so much about the esoteric diseases that have been described in three people in Taiwan, you know, as interesting as that might be scientifically. And the, the professors seem to get this and seem to be thrilled to work with us on, on that. Choosing the students was very important, as I mentioned. It was a little bit like yeah, the Jack, you guys were really like the Jackie Robinsons of the uh, PA movement here. We wanted people to be crisp and clean in their dress. And our, so our people, the four men and the one, uh, I don't know about Bernine's dress uh, code quite as well, but the four men, there was Jim Brown, George Smith, Henry Laurent, Dick Hall, and Bernine Camp were our first five. Coat and tie, please. Look crisp and clean when you go to make rounds. Dick will tell some great stories, I'm sure Beardine will later, on why this was so important. You had to be on time. You had to know your stuff. You had to do your homework. Meanwhile, in the evenings, Paul Mosen and I and Ann and Blair, we're sitting down, okay, we've got the curriculum for next week done. What, <laughs> what about two weeks from now? And the other thing we got from our students was feedback saying, this, is, this class didn't work so well. You know, could you maybe next time do it a little better? Or this really did work well. So we got a lot of feedback from our students. Our first graduating class graduated in January of 73. And it was a thrill to have Dr. Stead himself come up from Duke and give us our first graduation address. It seems just like yesterday. <coughs> I'll stop with that for now. And you're on. I'm on. Well, actually, I'm sitting on a trap door. And Claire says, if I don't leave him enough time, he's going to pull the. Well, Fred's already taken five of my minutes, and she's going to take the other five. I know. Well, and I, I told him, I reassured him that after um, Fred and I got through with our little talks, that we would need a lawyer. So, all right. Um, before I start, I have to say how wonderful it is to see all of you in rows like you used to be when I was teaching. And um, so many of you come up and said, you know, that stuff you taught us, well, sort of was more true than we thought at the time, because I was teaching them psychiatry. But anyway, and the other thing I want to do is to recognize John Kavanaugh, who was class of 74, came to us in 72, one of our earliest graduates, and he was the uh, sine qua non of what a PA applicant was like. He had a bachelor's degree. He, he had a, a bachelor's degree in sociology, very little science. He'd had a little experience in emergency medicine. He became a student leader, class delegate for the AAPA, uh, and went on then to do some work after he became a PA in, the, uh, in emergency medicine, and then got his MBA, got his PhD. He now is at the um, College of Osteopathy, Osteopathic Medicine at Philadelphia, in, um, uh, and he's a tenured professor there and chair of PA program there. Now, the, and that's not the end of the story though. About six weeks ago, I get this little thing in the mail, and it's a digital re recording of a tape interview 
that he had converted to digital. That he did with me in 1976. <laughs> <coughs> so I hope he doesn't mind my using some of my own words. <laughs> um, because I'm always so used to having to eat. <laughs> Anyhow. Now, I have three talking points. And thank you again, John. It's wonderful. I told him in a note I wrote back that someone had really raised a good sod. <laughs> so anyhow. Um, I have three talking points. One is philanthropy, the three Ps, politics, and puberty. <laughs> so you'll have to bear with me when we go to a little puberty. Uh, in terms of philanthropy, there is a story behind that Commonwealth grant that Jack Cole got, which I think is worth telling. It illuminates the last halcyon days of foundation private giving before the Tax Reform Act of 1970, which changed the way foundations gave money. Second of all, and you alluded to, there's an irony of getting money from the Commonwealth. I'll get to that later. Now, Charlie Brown's dog, Snoopy, always starts his stories with, "'Twas a dark and stormy night." Well, when Jack Cole went down to see Wig Newton, who's president of the Commonwealth Fund at the Harkness Mansion, 72nd Street near Fifth Avenue, it was a dark and stormy day. So Jack Cole and Quig Newton were sitting around in front of a roaring fire, sipping tea, and later in the day, I think, sherry. And uh, both of them, consonant gentlemen. And the Jack had two proposals that he needed money for. One was the trauma manpower and emergency services. The other was for a lab building for um, OBGYN research. And <coughs> he had the, the program he requested, I'll get them submitted in writing, and the very capable staff there had vetted both of his ideas, and Quick Newt was very receptive. Jack's ask was for $750,000 over two years. Quick Newt said, well, we're very interested in what you want to do. You're not going to be able to do it for $750,000. So he got him by the arm, ushered him into an empty conference room, gave him a pencil and his budget back, and said, take 30 minutes and go figure. So Jack Cole did, came out and said, <coughs> well, I, it, it, it's a million now, it's a million. Quick Newton looked at the whole thing and said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to give you a million for the health, manpower, emergency system and we're going to match it with a million for a building. Well, Jack Cole was flabbergasted. But Quid Newton explained, he said, we want people to have enough money for their projects for them to succeed. We do not want them to fall short for lack of cash. And after a fair amount of experience, we know what these programs take for money and how long they take. And by the way, you say you're going to get it done in three years, try five. We'd be happy to do it. But actually, with the <coughs> Cats and Jammer kids here, Hans and Fritz, uh, it was done in a little over two. But nonetheless, um, so that's, that was how that came to be. Now, um, this, that grant of a million dollars plus the million for the building was probably the last 
of its side from a private foundation. Because within months, the tax reform bill I talked about changed productivity. Grants became like federal grants. They had to be line item for excruciatingly specific purposes, pre-assigned staff for a limit of three years, and there was no longer foundation funds of any kind for bricks and mortar. Another point in telling the story is the irony that Fred referred to that today, or yesterday, we sat in the Parkness Auditorium to celebrate, to begin the celebration of the PA program founded 40 years ago, 40 years ago at the Harkness Mansion in New York. Now for politics. When Princeton University President Woodrow Wilson ran for President of the United States, he was scoffed at and ridiculed. Why, the man has no experience in politics. He's an ivory tower academic, to which he replied, anyone who has ever taught on a faculty of a college or gone through the indignities of the tenure crisis or run a college cannot say such an outlandish thing. Knew plenty about politics. And alas, it's true of Yale. And there are four things of questions that I've always, that in the beginning, I've asked myself over time, but gotten answered. One is, how did the PA program ever survive Yale? Next one is, how, what led the medical school to accept it and adopt it? What did the school of nursing think? Very venerable, decades-old institution with its own master's program for non-nurse college graduates who wanted to become nurses. Uh, so, and then finally, Fred also alluded to, how do we change from a surgical assistant, how do we morph from a surgical assistant to a regular type A PA program? Well, now the answers to these questions require a little bit of background and understanding about the Yale ethos and culture. Yale University is all about its undergraduate 5,500 students, period. It is not about its graduate program. Now, except with some respect for the law school. After all, it gives the country presidents, vice presidents, governors, senators at the state and the national level, and representatives, statements. gives us uh, mayors of big cities. And then they have a smallish PhD program, which is fairly rigorous, and that deserves, that has some distinction to it. But the divinity school, it's, we live in a secular age. We need more ministers. The forestry school, we need more forest rangers. Um, the drama school, just a lot of adults playing make-believe. So, um, the medical school, however, it had to float on its own bottom, and um, it generates income from two sources, one from the faculty practice, which goes back some of it to the medical school, but some of it goes back downtown, and the grants that it gets from HEW and NIH, which have 67% overhead spending, so some of that money gets sent downtown. Now downtown is the euphemism for this central Yale undergraduate or at this place. The 
it's so hard for people coming from the outside to kind of get this. So I was astounded when you know, we went into a certificate program. Oh boy. Now, none of Yale's graduate schools, therefore, is a tail which wags downtown's dog. And it's for nothing, not for nothing, that Yale's mascot is a bulldog. <laughs> so, keeping all of this in mind, how in the world did the PA, uh, PA program here survive? And the tandem questions, what prompted the medical school to support it, and what about nursing? The medical school had for years enjoyed government grants from HEW. Um, in the early 90s, however, HEW was pressing schools like Yale to have primary care residencies or family residencies. Um, Kingman Brewster, then president of Yale, <coughs> said never, and quote, the medical school, nevermore, as well. They, on the basis that they were turning physician scientists and specialists to become deans of schools of medicine all over the country, to chair departments in schools of medicine, and to chair sections of hospitals. Um, in the face, however, of this refusal by Yale, Senator Ted Kennedy threatened to pull all federal funding at any time. If we did, what's that, Jenny? Oh, I know. This thing is here. Okay. Uh, could I repeat that? Senator Kennedy. It's the last sentence, not the last 20 minutes. Oh. <laughs> He threatened to pull all funding of the medical school. Now, Rooster cannily pointed out he has a physician associate program, which has as his focus primary care. So that dodged HEW and federal bullets. Further, Rooster says that the newly co educated undergraduates. That the PA program provided for those undergraduates, re females, an opportunity for a career in medicine other than nursing. And, um, but in the mid to late 70s, funding was drawing down from the feds for the PA program. And PA tuition had been instituted, it got to be about $9,000 per student got to be about $9,000 per student. And the bean counters cross town, downtown, with their green eye shades and arm guarders said, yeah, but it's costing 20,000 to educate them. So what were they gonna do about the shortfall of $11,000? Well, you could charge more tuition, you could institute some economies. Um, and that would take care of part of it, but there's still about a $5,000 shortfall. Well, the medical school is going to have to cover that. And also, when you get into charging tuition, then you are more institutionalized and you become under more scrutiny from downtown. So Charles Taylor, the provost at the time, and it's provosts who run universities. They're the, they are the top bean counter. So Charles Taylor appointed the Selickson Committee to consider the fate of the Yale PA program. 
representatives from the provost's office, the medical school, the PA medical director, not Paul Mosin, who was the program director, and um, school of nursing, and the hospital were all on the selection committee. They worked very hard for months, and they interviewed a lot of people. They gathered a lot of information. Their task was to really explore the whole concept as well as its costs and come up with some kind of option for the future. Now, these are some of the things they considered. The Yale Medical School faculty were having a problem because they were teaching PAs pharmacology on Tuesdays and the nursing school pharmacology on Wednesdays. And wouldn't it be nice to just teach both of them on Thursdays once? And so there was some talk of perhaps having the didactic with the PAs uh, shared with the school of nursing. Um, perhaps the whole didactic could be farmed out to Quinnipiac University. <laughs> um, perhaps the whole program could go to the School of Public Health. Um, perhaps it could become a hospital medical center PA program. Or they could move to a master's program or keep the basic certificate program they had. Um, then there was always the final solution. The final solution is that when you have a funded program, that when the money dries up, you place the program into a burlap sack like a litter of unwanted kittens and drown it. The Seligson re uh, report came out and said that they uh, favored keeping the program certificate with the option of maybe considering master's. <coughs> um, the report sent downtown to the provost's office and to Kingman Brewster with, at the last minute, and without the knowledge of the others that were on the committee, a minority report from the School of Nursing. Now, the tone of it was scathing. They said the PA program was really just vocational, not an academic program. Why, the program did not even formally require a bachelor's degree, and you could take in those hospital-trained nurses. And that the uh, screening process, the application process, nobody from downtown so, um, in the bottom line, in a final scold, the minority report said that Yale downtown should be ashamed of itself for being party to such a program. Well, the people on the committee, I mean, there were people who might have sympathized with some of the points that school and nursing was making, but as members of the committee who had worked so hard, they were less than enchanted with the way that this minority report got submitted. So there was some, nursing school kind of lost a little bit of goodwill in that process. <laughs> 15, okay. Uh, yeah, well, we're getting puberty. Wait. <laughs> Wait. Um, now, nursing. Mary's going to have a heart attack. I know she is. That's okay. Now, nursing had not yet developed at Yale their nurse practitioner or nurse clinician program. So with all this PA thing, they got caught behind the curve and flat-footed to be able to say, well, we provide primary care. Now, finally, how did the surgical associate or surgical assistant morph into a physician associate? 
Dr. Cole had a great delegator who had hired Paul Mosin, an ex-military corpsman, second class of Duke, to come on board and to start a field program. But this was a little bit before I started in January. Paul started in March. The twins were busy doing their service to the country uh, in Washington. He couldn't get here till July. By the time they got here, well, Paul Mosin was a little energizer bunny. And he had been going around to the faculties, arranging possible courses, arranging clinical perspectives, and that sort of thing. So that thing was pretty well going down the road. And he kind of went to Jack Cole and said, you know, I was hired here to do a Duke PA first class program. I don't know anything about surgical assistants. So um, by that time, though, uh, Paul had recruiting going on, applications coming in, and class scheduled to start January 1st of 1971, and another one um, in September. So that was um, a little bit of how that happened. Now, forget it, puberty. For those of you who remember my course in psychosexual levels of development, you will understand my framing the development of the PA profession here at Yale and elsewhere. And I, it began as a brainchild of Dr. Stead and Thelma Ingalls at Duke, and they actually had nurse practitioner program called such. And in the 60s, they had met four or five classes of them. They tried twice and they went to the National League of Nursing to be accredited got turned down the first time. Second time, Eugene Stead said, well, what can we do? And they said, nothing. We will never accredit you. Nurses don't practice medicine. So <clears throat> he was done then with nurses. Um, <clears throat> so that brainchild of theirs proved to be a miscarriage. Now, um, the PA concept, however, using ex-military corpsmen then was birthed then in its infancy, PA programs took tentative steps into a world beyond Duke, and <coughs> the Duke graduates, of course, when they began to run those programs. So Duke was big brother to a growing number of siblings. <coughs> then the PA concept went into a latency period of intense study and learning about it by the foundations and the feds before proceeding ahead with more little ones. The nascent Yale PA program produced its white paper, uh, which moved the concept into its puberty. Always gender neutral, the PA program here, the effect of Yale's program was androgynous. On the one hand, Yale put hair on the profession's chest. On the other hand, it helped make the PA profession a thing of beauty so alluring that HEW could not keep its eyes off it and kept slipping it big money as the price for their enchantment. Um, <clears throat> eventually, even Yale, who had once been anxious and uncertain about the future PAs, became smitten with the profession. It then grew into young adulthood, a stage of development marked by the pursuit of dreams. The PA profession here has become more than the foundations, the government, or Yale ever dreamt. And now at age 40, the Yale program is in mature midlife, and at the peak of its productivity, Beware, please, no midlife crises. <laughs> Thank you.
I uh, static? Can you hear me all right? Okay. So since, as predicted, I have no time, right? <laughs> Uh, I can't even tell some of my extraordinary jokes, you know, and Mary's having a heart attack. So uh, I did want to say, though, it is really special to be back on a panel with my vastly older twin brother. He's not very bright, but he's one of the best-looking guys I've ever seen. Um, a couple of things that I would just build on. I'm really going to talk about three things, and this is going to feel like a drink of water from a fire hose. So sort of strap in, seat belts, car seats, helmets, the whole deal. One is a little bit about the legal climate, and Tom has sort of set the stage for that, and what did we do? Secondly, a little bit more about the white paper in the book and the five foundations, and then close with the emergency care contagion and how we took the work in Connecticut and spread it nationally, okay? So obviously, in terms of the legal background and the, the political climate was a time of tremendous uh, turmoil, change, rapidity, sort of mock speed, and enormous divisiveness. I mean, the battle between organized medicine and organized nursing was a religious war. And it was over what we came to conclude the wrong question. It was a, frame, a fundamental framing question is we have our body of knowledge and you have your body of knowledge. And we control ours, it's called medicine, and you control yours, it's called nursing. And so that independence in that battle, uh, which had a long history, was front and center of the legal environment. So based on the, all the things that Tom talked about, the Declaration of Legal Dependence, we called in the book, the, the PA's Magna Carta, because it was core to the quick liftoff and the quick spread. Had the PA movement taken a similar tack and tried to define their own body of knowledge that they controlled, there would probably not have been more than one or two pilot PA programs in the United States, and they would have closed, in my prediction, in three to five years, and the movement would never have occurred. It was that, that important, because of all the things that Tom outlined that were going on concurrently. So the simplest thing that we learned with Duke, and we had gotten to know them well, as Fred said, from the HEW people, and they had a wonderful task force about should they verify, legally codify the physician's right to delegate through the, the Practice Act, or should they have prior approval of training programs, which often could take a lot of time, as Tom outlined or uh, submit a job description to the medical board of the state, which at this point did not even have that role. That's, they weren't set up to do that. It was they were only on doctors. And so the simplest route to Rome to get this thing started was the delegation amendment. And uh, we could write it in one paragraph. It talked about diagnose, treat, operate, and prescribe, the poor holy grail of what medicine was, and said that basically PAs could do anything that the doctor delegated to them as long as they were under their supervision, control, and responsibility. Thus, those are the three, that was the troika of sort of the caveat that there would be protection. So we worked with somebody you may have heard of named Joe Lieberman. Uh, he was a 30-year, one-year-old state senator, and we, and others, and we got that bill through the Connecticut legislature, signed by Governor Tom Meskell in 71 because the time pressure was simply enormous. The Burdines of the world were beating down the door saying, 
I got to have some legal authority to do what you guys are asking me to do. So that was how we handled the legal thing, knowing that that was a short term and it was part of this larger tapestry of approval and accreditation. The book, uh, the chronology of how that happened, uh, a little bit more, Vernon Lepard is another key player whose name has not been mentioned this morning. And he was the dean uh, prior to the current dean at Yale, the dean that was the dean then. And he was doing some consulting work with the Macy Foundation in New York. And a consortium of five foundations, Commonwealth, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Macy, and the Child Development, had been meeting regularly on what should, they, what should the next chapter be in the PA uh, New Health Practitioner Movement. They were pioneers, as you've heard, they were early funders of some of the first programs, Duke, Colorado, MedEx, along with the feds. What was the next chapter? What were the next big policy issues? So they asked us, the three of us, to do a first sort of an environmental scan. How do you see, this was the sort of the 20,000 foot <laughs> policy book, was an academic curricular review. And then what's your crystal ball say are the implications from going from the very first phase of innovation to the second phase, if you think of a bell-shaped curve of innovation, the early adopter phase, which we were now in. Uh, what are the major things we need to be worrying about? And then give us a set of specific concrete recommendations for foundations and the feds to fund. And so that was what the white paper did or attempted to do. We were very fortunate that we had all these wonderful relationships we developed in our last year at HEW. So when we'd call somebody, they'd return our phone call and we really went to work. And they felt sufficiently good about it that uh, uh, they said, you gotta publish this thing in the first, uh, it was with Yale University Press. So that's how that happened. And then the third thing I wanted to talk to you about was back and moving back to the larger trauma EMS uh, world. Fred's already set the stage uh, that it really wasn't part of the healthcare system at the time for the reasons he covered and many others, but it was under this rapid change from the Vietnam experience. So we chaired uh, an advisory committee in the state of Connecticut that had the physician leaders, the nurse leaders, the fire chiefs, I think the hospital people, one of them was the funeral home director, and came up with a blueprint for improving trauma emergency care in the state of Connecticut. And that's when we used the nine extraordinary graduate students that Fred mentioned in the School of Public Health, each of whom wrote their master's thesis and a component of it, and that rolled up into that report. One of which was the, the whole pre-hospital system you've already heard was basically a wasteland uh, and all this other concurrent stuff that was going on at mock speed out of the academy and the College of Surgeons. So the, when you made a phone call in America at this time, you could get someone who knew how to respond to a fire or a criminal event, but if you had a poisoning or giving birth, they had no training, that dispatcher, that first response. Plus, there was no 911, so you called different people. And in Hartford, you literally had ambulance companies fighting over whose patient it was. That, that is how archaic it was at the time. So we had a lot of recommendations to try and change all that. And the other serendipity that occurred was we then, Fred and I then went from here in 73, July of 73, down the turnpike to a place called the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, 
and it was brand new. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson's will had been probated, and it was they had $55 million a year to give away. That was a very big number. It was the second biggest foundation after Ford overnight, and it was all in health care. The will said improve health care in the United States so he could do anything. The other thing that Dave Rogers, who was the first president, having coming out from Johns Hopkins as dean, said uh, with the early team, let's look at a whole way of doing business as a foundation. Uh, part of it was the accountability that Ann mentioned. But part of it was being proactive, not just reactive. So every foundation had its little book and said, here are our priorities. We're interested in these three things. And people would apply. And the grants would come in, applications over the transom. And you'd look at them and make some decisions. Kind of everything was a one-off, with a few exceptions, like the Clinical Scholars Program, something that had a core strategy. This idea was radically different, which was take an area in which you could make a surgical-focused, targeted intervention, like the changing world of emergency care, and get the best minds in the country and come up with a national program, very top-down, very strategic, not bottom-up, not laissez-faire, and put out some money. So I had the privilege, Fred was working on manpower issues uh, a lot at the foundation, to help lead the first national program that the Robert Johnson Foundation ever did, which was around emergency medical systems. And we got a great advisory committee of top people. The, we contracted out the management of the program, rather than hiring a big staff in Princeton, in this case to the National Academy of Sciences, who actually ran it. $15 million, 44 grants, 32 states, site visits, uh, a technical assistance arm to help the grantees, some of whom were fire departments, some of whom were county governments, some of whom were hospitals. It was really an eclectic group. Evaluated by the RAND Corporation in terms of impact of these interventions. And what did the money go for? Training frontline people in the field, uh, getting the radios and connecting the dots, getting help, training dispatchers, all of which the course had now come out from the academy. Okay. Uh, so there was a curricula for all of this that didn't exist two years before. And finally, trying to evaluate the impact on access to care, the speed of which it took to get to the scene, to be able to communicate at the scene, back to the hospital ER, and then get into the right trauma system, which were just being developed from go to Scoop and Hall, take to the nearest hospital. No, go to a selected place that's actually a designated trauma system. And so what was particularly nice about that was that David Boyd, in closing, who was a leading trauma surgeon at the time, ran this, the Illinois program, was on our RWJ advisory committee. He went down to HEW and to run their whole big trauma system. So our $15 million leveraged $255 million of grants to do virtually the same thing, which made the evaluation a bitch because, <laughs> you know, some people who didn't make it in our sweepstakes actually got more money from David but that was all right. The point is, everyone got better. You know, the tide raised all boats, and it was a very exciting time. So in the three minutes that I had, um, uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mary. I just wanted to give you a, a glimpse uh, from my perspective. Thanks very much. Appreciate it.